This is Castle Stories, a podcast from Newcastle Castle about the rich history of the North East. Hello and welcome to Castle Stories. I'm your host, David Silk. This week, we're looking again at medieval knights, a group about whom there are no shortage of myths. One stereotype of the medieval knight is neatly summed up by an old hymn or folk song that some people might remember being made to sing at school. When a knight won his spurs in the stories of old, he was gentle and brave. He was gallant and bold, with a shield on his arm and a lance in his hand. For God and for valour, he rode through the land. The stereotype is that knights were courageous, honourable, gallant to those weaker than themselves and so on. To put it very simply, they were chivalrous. Chivalry is one of those weird, nebulous ideas that has come down to us in the modern day. Probably few people could lay down exactly what the word means. But most people nonetheless have an idea of what chivalrous behaviour is. The myth we have before us is that medieval knights were chivalrous gentlemen, who behaved honourably and courageously. This image has started to be dented a little by shows like Game of Thrones, which depicted knights and other characters in a distinctly medieval world, which is filled with cruelty, treachery and brutality, especially in its depictions of knights and warfare. So perhaps we have a parallel myth as well, that medieval knights were actually cruel and rapacious. It should come as no surprise that the truth of the matter is somewhere between those two extremes. Medieval knights, after all, were people just like us. But let's take a little look at the myths and the reality of chivalry. Nowadays, if asked to define chivalry, most people would start to mumble a bit after talking about general fair play and holding doors open for ladies. But in fact, the word chivalry comes from the French word for a horse, cheval. Or more properly, the word chevalier, which means a cavalryman or a knight. So chivalry is just a term for knightly behaviour. The sort of behaviour which people thought knights ought to engage in it will surprise many people to learn that there never was an accepted definition of chivalry at any point during the Middle Ages, nor a list in the style of the Ten Commandments telling you what you were and were not allowed to do. It was more a set of guidelines than actual rules, you might say. Because it was never a single unified code or set of laws, ideas of what was chivalrous developed over time. The earliest knights like the chaps who invaded England with William the Conqueror in 1066, were a ruthless lot. In those days, knights were essentially armed and mounted retainers of powerful lords, little more than heavily armed thugs serving brutal warlords. Internecine warfare involving raiding and pillage was extremely common, and the most successful knights were then rewarded with wealth and land. In this context, the development of chivalry was primarily driven by the church, which sought ways to limit the violence that was being perpetrated by knights. As knights began to settle down and see themselves as respected and respectable members of society, they were encouraged to buy into a different view of knighthood. Starting around the 11th and 12th centuries, so the 1000s and 1100s, Knighthood stopped simply being a social status involving fighting and owning armour. It became an honourable, almost sacred calling, and knights were encouraged to behave themselves. As time went on, this began to be encouraged not just by the church, but by poets and by knights themselves, who wrote romances about the adventures of idealised knights. These were firm favourites with actual knights, 
who were encouraged to emulate their fictional heroes like Sir Lancelot. Bit more on him later. What did it mean to be chivalrous? It certainly wasn't about holding doors open. Chivalry was the code of the military elite of medieval Europe, so it was more about serving as a code of conduct for warfare than anything else, and it was there to help keep the violent impulses of knights in check. Loyalty to your lord and to your companions was emphasised, as was courage in battle. Geoffrey de Charny, a famous knight and the author of a book on chivalry, rated deeds of military valour as the most honourable and important thing for knights to attempt. He doesn't even mention holding doors open. Loyalty to the church was also an important consideration, and it's not a coincidence that the values of chivalry emerged at the time of the Crusades. Knights were encouraged to fear God, obey the church, and to be willing to fight infidels wherever they found them. Infidels as defined by the church, of course. Why do we primarily associate chivalry with men's behaviour towards women in this day and age? Well, knights were mostly men, and were encouraged in chivalric literature to show due consideration to noble ladies and respect their honour. This is part of the chivalric code's origin as an attempt to limit and control the violent impulses in people who were, ultimately, a warrior class. Not mistreating or attacking non-combatants, like women and children, was an important part of it. But in this area, chivalry also crosses over with another medieval idea that was becoming popular at the same time. Courtly love. This tradition is probably deserving of an episode in its own right, but put very briefly, knights were encouraged to devote themselves to women and perform great deeds in the names of their ladies. Wearing a lady's favour, usually a piece of their clothing, attached to their armour while jousting was a sign of this, and this kind of love was supposed to inspire knights to great deeds of arms. Some knights took it a bit far, of course. Sir Ulrich von Liechtenstein cut off one of his fingers and sent it to his lady, along with a poem. Poetry, of course, being a worthy accomplishment for a noble knight. The ability to write poetry might seem an odd thing to praise in a warrior, but the idea of chivalry was to elevate the knight from being purely a warrior to being what they called a gentleman. Poetry, song, dance, and music were all encouraged as were religious piety, wisdom, and generosity. Of course, all these things are relative, and very few knights lived up to the ideals of the characters in chivalrous romances like the stories of King Arthur. In fact, one of the most common themes in medieval literature is that the golden age of chivalry, when knights did behave well, was always in some mythical past, so the authors could bemoan how badly knights behaved in their own days compared with the knights of the round table. Equally important to these cultural elements, perhaps even more so from the knight's point of view, was that chivalry encouraged mercy towards defeated enemies, so that a knight would expect to be captured rather than killed on the battlefield and then be held for ransom. This not only went a long way to limiting the cruelty of warfare, but made capturing and ransoming prisoners a good source of income for skilled knights who might lack land or other sources of income. One of the most famous English knights, Sir William Marshall, began life as the landless younger son of a noble, but made his name in tournaments by capturing other knights and holding them and their gear to ransom. The castle keep in Newcastle was used throughout the 12 and 1300s as a suitably noble prison for captured knights or ladies to be held until their ransom could be negotiated. Such imprisonment was supposed to be comfortable. We have records of knights being paid their wages 
by their captors while imprisoned, and the prison chambers have private toilets or garderobes within them. Literature of the time suggests that it was a relatively open kind of imprisonment, where you were under guard but were allowed out of your cell in the day to walk freely around the castle and chat and have dinner with your captors and what have you. Now, this wasn't always the case, but it usually seems to have been a kind of tacit agreement between different sides in medieval wars. After all, who knows when the captor might become the captive. We can probably see from this that chivalry was never entirely a grandiose moral code, but had a ruthlessly practical side. At this point, we should also note that the rules of chivalry only applied to people of high status. Knights, lords noble ladies, and people of that sort. Records of medieval warfare show us that knights had relatively few qualms about engaging in the kind of economic warfare that involved burning down peasant villages and executing non-noble captives who were worthless uh, in a monetary sense. The problem with trying to decide whether knights were chivalrous or not is that chivalry was never simply a rule book with a checklist. It was a whole social environment bound up with the church, the feudal system, courtly love, and other aspects of medieval society and culture. Add to that the fact that it was primarily expressed through fictional adventures, such as the stories of King Arthur, and it's surprisingly hard to pin down what chivalry really meant to people in the medieval period. People at the time argued over what was and wasn't chivalrous behaviour, and there were frequently conflicts of interest. Two of England's most famous knightly kings, Richard the Lionheart and Henry V, both massacred prisoners of war when it was convenient to do so. And even in literature, the tensions and conflicts that could arise because of chivalry were explored, famously in the story of Sir Lancelot. I told you he'd come up again. In the story of King Arthur, Lancelot famously falls in love with Guinevere, King Arthur's wife. To a modern, monogamous, heteronormative point of view, this seems a very cut-and-dry case of infidelity, with Lancelot and Guinevere as the bad guys. But to a medieval knightly audience, this presents a real tension between the demands of courtly love and Lancelot's love for Guinevere, and the demands of his oath to Arthur. This is the key to the chivalrous dilemma that he faces in those stories. And lots of knights will have experienced similar conflicts of interest. Many of them even had multiple lords that they were supposed to serve and be loyal to. For example, King Edward I was often in conflict with the King of France, but as he was one of the Dukes of France, he also swore loyalty to the King of France as his lord. Chivalry could put a lot of people in some very complicated positions. In the end, murderous conflicts like the Hundred Years' War and the Wars of the Roses saw the end of practical chivalry on the battlefield and it began to be confined to a system of manners on the tournament field and in dueling culture. By the 1500s, books like Don Quixote, which is about a deluded old man who believes himself to be a chivalrous knight on an adventure and who is mocked by those around him, poured scorn on the old romances and the idea of the honourable and chivalrous knight. It was the Victorians who revived chivalry and imagined it as a regulated code by which knights lived. It's this reinvention of chivalry that most people are familiar with, rather than the brutal and often contradictory demands of honour that medieval knights live by. Hence, if someone says they're chivalrous, they're more likely to be holding doors open for someone than skewering peasants with a lance. Castle Stories is a Newcastle Castle production. This week's host was David Silk. You can find out more about Castle Stories and about Newcastle Castle 
at newcastlecastle.co.uk.